is Dr. David Whitlock with your Monday morning wake-up call, the podcast designed to help people wake up to the possibilities that surround them every day and become the person they're meant to be in Jesus Christ. Today's podcast is brought to you by Dr. Bobby Nelson and his wife Jackie. The Nelsons live in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and they give monthly by sending a donation to David Whitlock Ministries. You can do the same thing. Just go to our website. You'll find the mailing address there, or you can give on PayPal. Just click under the daily quote where it says, support our ministry. It happened on Monday, the third Monday in August, August 21st, 1911, when the most famous painting in the world was stolen. Only it wasn't the most famous painting back then. In fact, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa was meh compared to his more famous works. But all that changed thanks to Vincenzo Perugia, who stole that work of art, walking right out of the Louvre with it. But like I said, da Vinci's painting was, at that time, not a major attraction at the Louvre. Stealing the Mona Lisa was supposed to be impossible. At least, that's what folks thought back in 1910. So, how did it happen on that Monday in August 1911? Well, let's start with the thief. After moving from Italy to France, Vincenzo Perugia found work in Paris at the Louvre, where he was employed as a glassmaker. He actually helped construct the Mona Lisa's glass case, so he was already familiar with the painting and how to get to it. No one knows for sure why he did it. Perugia was from Italy. could have been that French artisans viewed him and others as outsiders, stealing jobs from them. Maybe Perugia felt less than in relationship with the French, particularly the French workers. Maybe he believed the French looked down on him, and all the time there he was staring at the Mona Lisa, which he knew was from Italy, his home country. Da Vinci, after all, had painted it in Florence, Italy, and Perugia mistakenly believed Napoleon had stolen the painting from Italy in the 1800s. So Perugia decides to bring the work of art back to its homeland, Italy. Well, anyway, at least that's the story that he would later tell the authorities. So on the night of August 20th, 1911, Perugia hid in a Louvre closet after work, and he waited until Monday, the day when the Louvre was closed for cleaning. Then he grabbed the Mona Lisa right off the wall, tucked it under his smock, the painting was too big to hide completely, so somehow he managed awkwardly, and he carried the painting to his apartment. No one called the police until Tuesday when the Louvre reopened. It was a scandal. For two years, French cops went on a wild goose chase. At one point, they even thought Pablo Picasso could be the thief, and they might never have found the painting if Perugia hadn't tried to sell it to an Italian art dealer for 500,000 lira. Perugia was arrested shortly thereafter. The Italian courts didn't exactly throw the book at him. Remember, Perugia claimed he was avenging Italy's honor and that the Mona Lisa should be back home in Italy. Never mind that he tried to make a half a million bucks from the theft. To the Italians, he was a hero, which might explain why the man who stole the Mona Lisa got just a seven-month sentence and was set free for time served. Well, during that time, that is the time when the painting was missing, something called Mona Mania swept the world. I mean, here was this high-profile investigation. People around the world wanted to know where this work of art was, what had happened to it, would it ever be retrieved. By 1913, when the Mona Lisa was returned to its rightful display in the Louvre, 
Well, the work of art was the sensation of the museum, and it has been ever since. Now, here's my question. Was the painting any different from when it was lifted by Perugia from the museum until the time it was returned? Well, Perugia certainly didn't improve on it. Thankfully, he kept it covered, hidden in a chest where no damage occurred to it. So you've got the same painting, yet its popularity soars in its absence. Who exactly is depicted in Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa? Well, that's been long debated by art historians. It was probably Lisa del Gondo, an Italian noblewoman who was the wife of a wealthy business person, a cloth or silk merchant in Florence, Italy. The oil painting was probably completed between 1503 and 1506. If you look closely at that painting, you'll notice she doesn't have any eyebrows. While it was long believed that the Mona Lisa's lack of eyebrows and eyelashes reflected the classy Florentine fashion of upper-class women of the day, more recent digital scans seem to show that da Vinci's original work included the now-faded facial hair, so there's a bit of a mystery there. As for her pose, with her right hand resting over the left, she indicates a faithful wife. Her dark garments are also suggestive of Spanish fashion trends of the day. I'm not an art historian, but those that know say da Vinci's famous painting was far ahead of its time in the artistic nuances portrayed in that work of art. Lisa, of the Mona Lisa, Lisa del Gondo's husband, Francisco, likely commissioned the portrait from Leonardo in honor of their new family home, Da Vinci took the painting as a gift himself, Da Vinci as a gift for Francis I, when Da Vinci moved from Italy to France to become a painter in the king's court during the 16th century. That's 250 years before Napoleon's birth, so Perugia was terribly mistaken in believing that it was Napoleon who had stolen it, if that was truly his motive anyway in, in, in the theft. The painting was moved to the Palace of Versailles by Louis XIV, where it remained until the French Revolution. Actually, for a brief period of time, it did hang inside the bedroom of Napoleon. In 1797, it went on permanent display in the Louvre Museum, where it's remained until Perugia lifted it on August 21, 1911. Despite its initial popularity among the French ruling class when it was first placed there centuries ago, da Vinci's painting was... Pagrav, no big deal at the Louvre in those days until it was stolen. What can we learn from this incident? I think of a couple of passages of Scripture. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. And then there's a story in Jeremiah chapter 18 about the potter and the clay. And Jeremiah wrote, so I did as he told me and found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message. O Israel, cannot not do to you as the potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. You may not think of yourself as much of a masterpiece. You may look in the mirror and think, no masterpiece here. But inwardly, in light of those scriptures, inwardly and in reality, you are God's work of art. 
as you long to allow the potter to shape you, he will continual, continually transform you by his amazing grace. It's a gift of his grace. The evidence of that grace in our lives is holiness, the fruit of being in a saving relationship with God. The result is that we become more and more like he wants us to be. So we are truly works of art, although we're still in progress. We have to remember we are his work of art for him to do with us as he wills. And that means giving ourselves completely to him and his way for us. And that's a good thing because he loves us like no other. And things get exciting when we, when we quit trying to be the director or master craftsman of our own art show, featuring, of course, ourselves. When we come to the end of ourselves and realize whose we are, we truly shine as the painting, if you will, in God's art gallery. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 43, 1, But now, o Israel, the Lord who created you says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. As we realize we are in the hands of a loving Father, tremendous things can happen. And the wonderful news is, even if you've messed up, which we all have, He reshapes us, even using our mistakes to improve His artwork, that is us. You will never be everything everyone thinks you should be. The critics would probably have changed Mona Lisa's smile, put brighter clothes on her, positioned her hands differently, reconfigured the nuances of da Vinci's work and ruined the painting because, you see, they didn't get it. They didn't see his genius until the work was taken away from them. Most people don't know you, really. They don't always see what God sees in your life and what he's doing inside you. They can't. I mean, even we ourselves can't. That's why responding to the master artist takes faith. So we stand strong and be the person God intends us to be, not a secondhand version someone other, some other person may have or want to make of you. You are who you are, even if no one ever sees it. In God's eyes, you are a masterpiece, and you are on this earth because God wants to love you. As you respond to that love in a relationship with Jesus Christ, he will mold you and shape you into that image. But you yourself, you're unique, you're one of a kind, and one day, one day we'll see Christ face to face, and in a way that I don't completely understand, we will be like him. There's only one Mona Lisa, and there's only one you, and along the journey we can give thanks for each other. You give thanks for you, my friend. You are fearfully and wonderfully made a true work of art, and so you go out and be the person God created you to be, and then you come back here next week, all right? And in the meantime, glorify the Lord your God. <laughs>